Let me put these verses into some context for you. As we've worked our way through Revelation, we've said that we are receiving valuable information. And that information has been valuable because we all have ideas about what we want the church to be. We will work hard in the churches that we attend or where we're members to make that church into the kind of church we want it to be. And if we can't turn that church into the way we want it to be, we'll church hop and we'll go to other churches looking for a church that looks the way we want it to be. But here in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, we've seen this very valuable information because we get to see very clearly what Jesus thinks his church ought to be. And the way that we see that is Jesus is dictating these letters to the Apostle John and instructing him to give these letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And in these letters, Jesus tells the things that he likes that are going on in those churches. And so by listening in, we understand what Jesus likes to have in his church. And so we can emulate those things as a church and we can be more the kind of church Jesus wants us to be. And as we hear Jesus criticize certain things about those churches, then we can see those are things that Jesus does not like in his church, and we can turn from those things. This has been valuable information for us, and we will listen in now to what Jesus has to say to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Let me read the first six verses, and then I'll pray for us, and we will dig in and look at these verses together. Hear now the words of the risen Christ. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do give us guidance, that you do speak clearly about what you would have for the people in your church. And I pray that you would use these words now, that you would open our ears, you would open our hearts, that you would give us a desire to be more the kind of church, to be more the kind of people that you would have us to be. And I ask that you'd be willing to do all this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I don't know what you think when you hear these six verses, this latest letter that we looked at at the church to Sardis. But to me, this is the scariest of the seven letters. And the reason it's so scary it's because Jesus is writing this to the church that church history tells us is the largest of the seven churches. This church had more members. It had more people. It was an active church. They had a lot of things going on. They were doing a lot in that community. You see here in the text that Jesus says they have a reputation of being alive. But Jesus looks at that church and says that they are, in fact, dead. 
That's scary to me. It's scary to think, how could they be that far off in their assessment of themselves? How could people look at them and think they're alive, but they're actually, when Jesus looks at them, who, the one who sees everything, and he says that they're dead. And if I'm really honest with you, the reason why this is scary to me, because it makes me to begin to think, if we read the scriptures the way that we should, applying these things to our life, what if our assessment of ourselves is not very accurate? What if our assessment of our church is, is way off in our assessment? How can what, what state are we actually in? Where are we? Are we alive or are we dead? Let's look and see what problem Jesus had with this church. What's the problem? That'll be the first thing we'll look at. What is the problem that was here in this church? Then hopefully we can see if we have that problem. And then secondly, I want to look and see what is the solution? What does Jesus say the solution is? Let's look at those two things together. First, what is the problem that Jesus has with this church? You see it right there in verse 1, don't you? Jesus said, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What is Jesus saying there? What is it that he's, he's critiquing here in this church? Evidently, Jesus is saying what can be seen on the outside, that that was not an accurate reflection of what was going on inside this church or inside the people there. The critique Jesus had is that they are outwardly sending a message because they have a reputation for being alive, but they're outwardly sending a message that is not true inside of them. I think we have to say at least that much. But what is exactly the problem? In what sense is that true? Where's the disconnect? What's the discrepancy between the outward message that they're sending and the inward reality? What's the discrepancy? Well, Jesus gives us a little help. He tells us a little more. In verse 2, you see what he says? He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works. That's good. Yeah, we want to see what is the problem with the works. What problem does Jesus have? He says, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, what's Jesus saying there? What does he mean by that? I read some commentators, and they say that Jesus could be saying here that the church never finishes anything that they start. That that's why they don't complete, the works are not complete in the sight of God. That maybe they have great ideas, that they have great plans, but there's very little follow-through. They don't actually see things through. They don't close the deal. They don't finish the drill. They didn't count the costs. And those things are certainly scriptural truths. I guess it's in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus explicitly says that his people should count the cost beforehand so that they can finish strong and finish what they started. So that's a scriptural truth. And maybe that is what Jesus is saying here. But I'm not, I'm not buying that. It seems to me if they never finished what they started, that would be something that you could see from the outside right? I mean, that would be apparent from the outside. I don't think they would have the great reputation that they had. I think people on the outside would say, oh man, they have these great ideas, and they start all these great projects, but they never finish. So it's hard for me to say that's what's going on in this church. Evidently, they have a lot of people doing stuff, 
and it looks good on the outside, but something is missing. Something that is not in the sight of people because they have a reputation of being alive. But it's something missing in the sight of God. You see, Jesus says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Well, what, that, what could that be? What is it that, that people sometimes misread, that, that people don't see, but that God sees? What could that be? Does the Scripture give us any help in other places? Does God talk about what he sees and what people look like? And I believe there is some scriptural help here. The Bible actually talks an awful lot about the difference in the outward appearance to people and the inner reality that is seen by God. I think of one place. I think of 1 Samuel chapter 16. God has given Samuel the task of finding the new king. And he's supposed to anoint the new king for Israel. And Samuel keeps looking at for these men who are the tallest, who are the strongest, who are the best looking. And God says, stop looking for the king that way. Stop looking for tall, dark, and handsome. That's not what I have in mind. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, God says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. That's right. God looks at our hearts. So while people tend to see our outward appearance and what's going on on the outside, God looks at our hearts. There are other places where God talks about this distinction. I think of a place in Isaiah chapter 29 where the people of God are coming into the temple and they're making sacrifices and they're burning incense and they're making sure they don't do anything else on the Lord's day. And they come in and they say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then they go out the rest of the week and live any way they please with no connection to what happens in the temple of the Lord. And God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to that group. And it's interesting, that's the Old Testament people of God. But Jesus uses the exact same quote in Matthew chapter 15 when he's talking to the Pharisees. And those guys, they went to the temple and made the sacrifices and burned the incense. But boy, outside of church, outside of the temple, outside of the synagogue, they lived the law of God scrupulously. They didn't miss anything. Even the, we're told, the, the spices that they grew, they would tie the tenth of the spices from their spice garden. That's how meticulous they were to follow the law. And Jesus quotes the same thing to them in Matthew 15 that God had said through the prophet Isaiah to his people in Isaiah 29. Listen to what he said. He said, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Again, God's looking at the heart. He's looking at that inner man. You know, we outwardly say and do a lot of things. But I want to ask you this morning, where is your heart? That's what Jesus is concerned about. He's concerned about your inner life. What are you giving your heart to? The main lesson to be learned from Jesus' letter to this church at Sardis is this. Every church and every individual believer 
can look good on the outside while our hearts are far from Jesus. We can look alive on the outside, but be dead on the inside. Jesus talks about this with his disciples in John chapter 15. In that chapter, he makes an interesting statement. He he describes himself, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, when he's saying he's the vine and that we're the branches, he's saying that in order to, to, to maintain life as a branch, we've got to stay connected to the vine. That's why he uses that, that imagery of abide in me and I in him. That we have to stay connected to Jesus. That if you separate the branch, it dies. And that's exactly what Jesus is looking for in the lives of these believers in Sardis and what he looks for in the believers here in the Shoals area of Alabama. Jesus has called us into the Christian life. And the essence of the Christian life that Jesus calls us into is staying connected to Jesus. This life begins with a relationship with Jesus. It's a life that can only be lived in relationship with Jesus. It's a life that we cannot live apart from him. It's a life we can't sustain separated from Jesus. If we have no inner relationship with Jesus, if there's no inner connection to Jesus, we are dead. We must stay connected to Jesus. Oh, we can be real busy and active on the outside, right? We can do all sorts of things associated with Jesus. We can do them in a way that we get a reputation for being alive in Jesus. But apart from an inner relationship, being connected to Jesus on the inside, we will not have life in us. Apart from Jesus, cut off from the vine, we're dead. It's that simple. We've entered a life that we cannot live separate from the power of that a relationship with Jesus gives us. Jesus talks about this in other places. I think of Matthew chapter 7. He's talking about what will happen on the last day when he returns, that day of judgment. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's drawing that distinction between what they say with their lips, with their mouth, and what the internal reality is. Look, they're even doing a lot of things. Look at verse 22. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? They're doing lots of good stuff. In verse 23, and then will I declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you, depart from me. Jesus uses relational language there. I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. We weren't connected to each other. Listen, this is why this is scary. Because we can read about Jesus. We can imitate Jesus. We can tell other people about Jesus. We can have experiences of Jesus and still not know Jesus. And still not have an ongoing, vibrant connection in a relationship to him every day. Instead of having that vital relationship with him. That's the problem that's identified in this church. They're doing a lot of good stuff. It looks good on the outside, but the branches are not connected to the vine. 
They don't have a real relationship with Jesus, not an ongoing, vital relationship with him. There's a problem with their hearts, separate and apart from their outward works. So what's the solution? Jesus gives five commands, and we're going to look at each of them quickly. He says to wake up, to strengthen what remains, to remember what you received and heard. He says keep it. He says repent. We're going to talk about all five of those things. But before we do, I want you to remember something. Maybe you are hearing this and you've heard the problem and you're saying, oh no, maybe my assessment of my own heart has not been a very good one. Maybe you're thinking, I've been doing a lot of good stuff, but, but I'm not staying connected to Jesus. For some of us, if we're honest, we don't even look that good on the outside. We sure don't want to be looking at the inside where God can see. And so this is scary to us if we're honest in our assessment with ourselves. And it should be scary. This is serious. These are eternal, weighty matters of significance. And before I go into these specific commands, I want you to think about the implications of Jesus saying these things. What are the implications? What what is he implying by saying this? The implication is, He's telling us what we can do to fix the problem. He's giving us a solution, and that means all is not lost. It means we have not fallen beyond recovery. It means that a relationship with Jesus is not beyond our grasp. Jesus would not command these things if there was no hope. Because of his grace, we can begin in relationship with him again. In fact, the Christian life is beginning again and again and again because his grace is so good and so rich and so deep. We can have life in Jesus. Maybe you came for the very first time. Maybe you've never had that kind of a connection. Maybe it's something that you'll be going back to for a second time. Maybe it's something you'll be doing. You'll be reconnecting with Jesus again. That tends to be the way he's talking in the passage to people in that situation. But let's look at the solution. What is it? If that's where I am, if the inner reality is not there, that they're just outward appearances, or maybe for some of us there's not even the outward appearance, it's just all bad, what would Jesus say to us? The first thing he says, wake up. Jesus says, wake up. Jesus wants them to have an honest assessment of themselves. Jesus is saying, look, just because you come to church and you sing the songs does not mean that you have a relationship with him. You can attend on Sunday. You can take time to be in a small group. You can do lots of stuff and have a personal ministry. But that does not mean that you have a relationship with the risen Christ. Listen, the issue is this. Do you have an ongoing relationship with Jesus? Jesus is saying you need to wake up, and you need to wake up to the reality that relationship with him is the vital issue. And sometimes when we talk about this, we say, I don't know how to have a relationship with Jesus. Listen, that's why we're doing this walking your path class. I hope you'll come and be involved or watch the videos. But basically what we have said in the teaching has been this, how do you have any relationship with somebody, right? Well, we've said what you should Pray and be in the Word every day because if there is a person you want to have a relationship with, you have to talk to them on a regular basis. That's just prayer when we're talking to God. 
And if you want to have a relationship with somebody, you have to listen to them and take what they say seriously in any relationship. That's just reading the Word and hearing from Christ. And we've said, listen, if you don't talk to any person on a regular basis and you don't listen to them on a regular basis, the reality is you don't have a relationship with that person. So that's what a relationship with Jesus looks like. That's what he's calling us to. Do you spend time with him? Do you talk to him? Do you listen to him? And if you don't, then you need to wake up. This is serious. And it has eternal consequences. The second thing Jesus says there in verse 2 is to strengthen what remains. Now this was puzzling to me because I thought, Jesus, why would I strengthen what remains? Because he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Why do I want to strengthen what's about to die? What's that about? Well, you got to think about what is it that remains? What is it that remains and is about to die? What is it that they do have going for them here at this church? These outward things that they're doing. They are faithfully coming to church. They are faithfully doing a lot of good stuff, right? They are singing the hymns. They are saying the responsive scripture readings. They're doing those things. And Jesus says, strengthen those things. That you should attend on Sunday. That you should take time to be in a community group. That you should have a personal ministry. That those things should still remain on the outside, even though the relationship is not there on the inside. Notice, this is fascinating to me. <laughs> Notice Jesus doesn't say, get rid of all A lot of people just say, well, I'm not going to try to be good anymore because it's not about me being good, and so I'm just going to you know, go off and do what I want to do, and it's Jesus and me. And that's not what he says. He says, keep doing those outward things. Those outward things are not wrong. Jesus is not against the outward things. What he's saying here is that those outward things in order for them to be complete in the sight of God, they should do what they were created to do, which is to lead us to Jesus, to help us to more easily and to better attach to him. That attending here doesn't mean you're okay with God, but it should supplement, it should reinforce, it should nourish your everyday relationship that you have with him. If you're looking to just what you get on Sunday to last you all week, that's not enough. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. If you're only eating one day a week, you're malnourished. This is to supplement you. This is to nourish you. This is to encourage you in what's going on all the other days of the week. And Jesus says, keep doing those things. Strengthen what remains. Stay faithful in the outward forms. Don't give up on those, but just use them as a means to better nurture your inward relationship with him. That's what he means when he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Because if they don't get connected to the vine, the branches are going to die and those outward things are going to go soon. Verse 3, Jesus says, remember what you received and heard. I'm like, Jesus, you're so cryptic here. You just don't remember what you I wasn't in Sardis. I don't know what they received and heard. What is that? What did they receive? Remember what you received and heard? I wasn't there. Can the scripture give us any help? And it does. This was fascinating to me when I was really, I mean, y'all, I give y'all in two minutes what it takes me like two days to do. I'm like, what did they receive in here? I don't know. Sardis didn't really mention a lot of places in the scripture. What is it they received? But if you read the New Testament, 
over and over again, when you see this word receive, there's something that's always right there with it. Do you know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit. Let me show you just a few places. I think of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, the resurrected Christ in John chapter 20. He looks at those men and he says, and he breathed on them and he said, receive, there's our verb, the Holy Spirit. All right, okay, that's one place. I mean, that could be anywhere. Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Christ is about to ascend into heaven. You get to verse 8, and Jesus says to him, but you will receive, there's our verb, power when the Holy Spirit, there it is again, comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the earth. Right? Acts 2.38, Peter says it at Pentecost. He's preaching there, the Holy Spirit's come. Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive, there's the verb again, and you receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Gosh, it's so, it happens all the time. The Apostle Paul does it. Romans 8, down around verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. And then he does again, but you received a spirit of sonship by which you cry, Abba, Father. Now twice you see the receive and the spirit language in a row. But look what he says the spirit does. He says you receive the spirit and that's what enables you to have a relationship with your father. Remember, that's what Jesus is talking about. You've got to stay connected to the vine. And Paul is saying it's the spirit when he comes into our hearts that cements that relationship, right? That when the Spirit comes, he convicts us of sin and helps us to see how we're giving our heart to other things. And it's the Spirit as he works in us that gives us a hunger and a thirst that even produces guilt. It's the Spirit that applies the finished work of Christ to our hearts so that we're connected to him again. So notice that receiving the Spirit, that's what pushes us into the relationship. One more just for the fun of it, right? Galatians 3 and verse 2. I want to show you this one because it has what they received, but also what they heard. Remember, that was the other thing. They're to remember what they received, the Holy Spirit, and what they heard. Galatians 3 and verse 2, Paul writes, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit? You saw it coming that time, didn't you? Because it's so consistent, right? Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? So they're supposed to remember what they received, the Holy Spirit, and what they heard. Now, what do you think the folks in Galatians 3 heard? What do you think the folks in Sardis heard that they're supposed to remember? Yes, the gospel. Thank you, whoever's out there for me, not leave me stranded out here on this limb, right? They heard the gospel. They heard the good news. That it's not about what you do that makes you right with God. That it's about what Jesus has done that makes us right with God. That it's his perfect life. That it's his sacrificial death that makes us right with God. And when we remember what Jesus has done for us, that when we were sinners, when we didn't deserve it, he was willing to leave the perfection of heaven and to give his life for us, it melts our hearts and it draws us into relationship with him. That's why Jesus says, remember what you've received and what you've heard. Number four, he says, keep it. This word is sometimes translated guard it. It has the connotation of being vigilant. 
He's saying, watch carefully. Don't let anything make you neglect the hearing of the gospel, the receiving of the Spirit, and this relationship with Jesus. You've got to guard this relationship zealously. You have to keep it. You have to guard it carefully. You know, this happens in any relationship, right? If you don't make it a priority, if you don't keep working on the relationship, it fades. It happens, right? I see it in couples. They have kids. They get real focused on the kids. Everything revolves around the kids. They don't work on their own relationship anymore. And even though they live in proximity to one another, the kids grow up and leave the house, and they say, we don't even know each other anymore. You've seen that happen in couples because they haven't guarded, they haven't kept the relationship. Jesus is saying, guard the relationship. Keep it. Be vigilant. Work hard on it. Don't let anything make you neglect your relationship and keep the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit, right? Don't grieve the Spirit. Be quick to turn from other things. Be sensitive to His leading. Guard the gospel in your life and guard that relationship. Number five, Jesus says to repent. We've seen that several times in these letters. We've said repent just means to make a U-turn, to turn from other things to Jesus. Let's just be real honest. Let's just, we're all the way down to the heart level. Let's just be honest with each other. We give ourselves to many things besides a relationship with Jesus. We often neglect that relationship and we don't spend time with him. But we don't miss a day reading the news. We don't miss a day on social media. I get a text today, like what my hourly usage per day on my phone was this past week. And listen, I didn't miss a day, right? We don't miss time on social media. We don't miss our favorite TV shows. We don't miss movies. Somehow we have two hours for those. And listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't watch the news or be on social media or TV or movies, but what I'm saying is, if we give our hearts to those things and we don't guard our relationship with Jesus, we're dead. In fact, what I would say is, you shouldn't be in the news, you shouldn't be watching TV or movies without being connected to Jesus, or you're not going to process that stuff rightly. It will be poison to you instead of you being salt or light in those areas. Now, as Jesus talks here to the end, he says something to me that's still very frightening. When you look, he says in verse 4, You still have a few people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And when we get there, we say, oh, no, I've soiled my garments. I've messed this thing up. I haven't been close to Jesus. I haven't guarded that relationship. I've already, yeah, my name's not going to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't have that white garment. How do I have a white garment? Is it just over for me? Well, first, remember what I said at the beginning. All's not lost. Jesus wouldn't give these commands of things we could do if there's no hope. Because of his grace, we can begin again, so there's still hope for us. But what about this verse for the garments? There's only a few who are worthy. What do we do with that? Let me answer that question. How do we get white garments? If you want to look ahead, for me, I'm just flipping over two pages to Revelation 7. Revelation 7. The context there is the Apostle John is looking into heaven. 
and he sees a great multitude of people, and they're all wearing what? White garments. They all have on these white robes. And John's curious about that. And in Revelation 7, in verse 13, listen to what happens, what what transpires. John writes, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? Verse 14, John said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. In the blood of the Lamb. Oh, beloved. We're not made right with God because we're good enough or we're smart enough or because doggone it, people like us. You know, the church at Sardis, people loved them. They had a great reputation, and Jesus said they were dead on the inside. We're made right with God because Jesus was good enough, because he's smart enough. Because he was willing to die for us and take the punishment that we deserve because he lived the perfect life. We get his garments. We get his clothing. He clothes us in his righteousness. Listen, Jesus is the one who takes soiled garments and makes them white with his blood. Jesus is the one who takes broken and messed up people like us who have soiled our garments. And he makes us new. And he washes our hearts on the inside and makes us as white as snow. So let's run to him. Let's stay connected to him. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to have an accurate assessment of ourselves, of our church, of our own hearts. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would help us to to guard to maintain this vital relationship with Jesus. Help us to strengthen those things that enable us to have that relationship better. Help us to wake up to the ways we don't have that relationship like we should. Help us to keep it guarded. Help us to turn from other things and lesser things, as Will prayed earlier. Help us to turn from those lesser things to you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.